people that I saw there. It's like nothing I've ever seen. I walked away from Washington, D.C. saying that is the most evil thing I have ever seen in my life. And I wanted to do what Jesus said, wipe the dust of, of that city off my feet. That was horrible. And then, of course, we're in the cancel culture. And by the way, I put a, I put a little thing on about what I saw in Washington, D.C. And I put just a, a little more a picture on Facebook. And I said, I'm going to talk about that. Canceled. Canceled for a month. And by the way, I said, no way. You're canceled, and so I'm not on Facebook. So, so And I suggest that for everybody. Cancel them. You don't have to be canceled. But you know, that happened in Washington, D.C. You know, I have a picture of all the rioters that got into the Capitol, and they have these little barricades, these just little these things with ropes, you know, to keep them. And they're all inside the barricades. What if these guys got in there? Would they have been inside the barricade? They'd been tearing the place down and setting fire on it. What is going on in America? I mean, this anarchy, they were just trying to burn down another courthouse in Portland just the other day. And then, then there's this issue. I mean, how do you really get confused at that? I mean, generally speaking, after that, they get confused, I guess. I don't get it, okay? Uh, and then, oh, sorry, I almost put global warming because I'm an older guy, but it's not that anymore because we're not warming, we're just changing. Don't know what that means, but we are, and it's dangerous, and it's going to kill us. So we got to deal with it. And then COVID came along. And I, I love that picture, you know? How many of you like those masks? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, and they're so effective. They're, you know, if you ever run on a cold day and you want your breath go right through, you go, this is really working well, working well. Here's a little something for you. Next to the current bailout, trillion is the new billion. When you look at it, it doesn't seem all that big. But it's a huge number. What's the economic impact of a trillion bucks? Imagine this. For a trillion dollars, you can buy a three dollar latte every day for 900 million years. A trillion dollars is greater than the Australian GDP. It's enough to buy up every sock on the Toronto Stock With a trillion dollars, you can fund the militaries of all the NATO countries in Boston. Or you can pay for all American military action since 9 11. It's twice the cost of the New Deal, 10 times the cost of the Marshall Plan. It can cover every good check in the U.S. for three years, buy every home in Fort Lewis in 07 and 08, send the U.S. on an 11-week vacation, or run the entire federal government for over three months. A trillion dollars can go a long way. The amazing thing is, a trillion dollars is only one-tenth of the current bailout. And I don't know what that number actually means there, but that's pretty sobering. You know, I remember when I was growing up, and one of the uh, senators or representatives nationwide was making fun of the federal budget, and they said, a million, a billion dollars here, and a billion dollars there, and eventually adds up to uh, real money. And, and, and now we're at trillion dollars here, and it's, that's a thousand times that. And we're going, what? how long can we do this? I, I just can't understand how it can be sustainable. And then there's this idea of global digital currency. And we're going to come back to this, by the way. But the International Monetary Fund, how many are familiar with them? That is the center of 
uh, here's the question that we're going to be asking today. Is the world falling apart? Or is the world falling in place? And I think that's what we're going to be seeing as we finish up our weekend today. Now, we're not going to delve into all the details of what's happening worldwide. What we're going to really look at is what does the Bible teach. We're going to do systematic theology. We're going to look at this topic of the end times. And we're going to build ourselves a systematic theology so that we can put the pieces together ourselves at home as we see these things happening. So are we seeing evidence of the return of Jesus? Well, there might be some evidence out there that things are starting to change. Radically and rapidly. Radically and rapidly. So what events must as we start this, we're going to have to really look at what's happened in this world so far. And you're thinking, okay, well, let's look back a few years. We're going to go back a long ways, okay? And we're going to go back to about 4,000 to 4,500 B.C., all right? And you, if you've been around me, I can't help but go back to the, set, to the beginning. Now, that's just my MO because it's so important that we get this right. And the Bible teaches us a different worldview than what we've been taught. By the way, here's a plug. What you're learning in world history, what you're learning in your biological and your science courses is basically atheism. And so when you see science signs that disagree with the Bible, say 4.5 billion years ago, happened, what you are reading is a sign that is atheist. That is atheist worldview, and it's imposed upon science, and the evidence is minimal. All right? almost zero. We have much better evidence on our side. But that was that's as much as you're going to get this weekend. Now, let's take a look at things. It begins with the creation. Approximately 4,000, 4,500 B.C. Okay? And after that comes that great event in Genesis chapter 3, we call the fall which changed everything. And in fact, there's a section in my book about how we really look at, I looked at and became aware of the cost of the fall to all of our lives. All of our lives are affected by that in ways we can't even imagine. The next major event on the timeline, the biblical timeline, would be the flood of Noah. And that flood is a worldwide flood. And by the way, I just have a blast living in Montana because the evidence everywhere. Uh, if you saw the startup picture before I put this up, and Rod is here, Pastor Rob is here, and right here his house is a, is a is a butte uh, that I took, that brown butte, and that's a picture of that. It's tremendous evidence of the flood of Noah. Uh, but we'll come to that another day in another place. All right, the flood of Noah. After the flood of Noah, they get off the boat, and then the, the population starts to build, and we come to the, the origin of the nations, which is the what? Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel, the origin of the nations, an origin of languages. And in fact, that's... We don't have any other explanation how all these languages developed other than somehow they were suddenly that way. And the Tower of Babel answers that. Well, after the Tower of Babel, God pulls out a guy. What's his name? Abram. And eventually we know him as Abraham. And his wife, Sarah, who eventually called Sarah. And so that becomes the patriarchs. And out of that comes the line of Israel. 
his third son, or grandson rather, his grandson uh, is Israel. And so uh, they end up in Egypt, and you know the story, and eventually ex there's an exodus out of Egypt. And so we have the exodus. And after that, we have a con the conquest of the land as they go in and retake the land. And there's a lot to that story. We won't go into it today. And that is followed by Saul. Then eventually we have the time of the judges here. And then we have Saul, the first king of uh, Israel. Now, let's look at this another way. The Pentateuch. How many have heard that word? Okay, yeah. First five books of the Bible. And, and so th this book, Genesis, covers that whole area all the way up to the patriarchs. And that's pretty amazing. Now, then, Job, you don't know when Job fits in. By the way, what I'm going to do is show you how each book of the Bible fits into the timeline. And, and that's valuable. And I have copies of over there for you, so you can take this home with me. And uh, so you can do that, and that'll be something that you can do. What's nice to keep that, and then you're going to start reading the book of Obadiah, and you go, what is that talking about? Well, look at the chart, I'll show you. Okay? All right. So we have Genesis that covers all the way up to the patriarchs. Then we have Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that follow. Now, Exodus, of course, covers the time of the Exodus, right? And at the Exodus during that time, uh, Moses meets God at Mount Sinai, and he's given what there? The law, the law for the Israelites. And so then, then they uh, they uh, they move out, and they're going to they're heading towards. They're going to take the land, and they send out their spies. And the spies say, there are giants in the land, and Nephilim are there. We can't take them. I mean, this is the God who just took them across the Red Sea and killed all the Egyptian army right in front of them. They were cornered. They're going to die the next day. God gives them across the, the, the ocean. They cross this big uh, sea water, but then they see a couple of giants, and they know that they can't beat them. All right? And so God punishes them by what? 40 years, right? 40 years in, in, in wandering around in the desert. They numbered the number of people before they did the census. Before they started the 40 years, and they numbered them at the end. What do you think is the name of that book that talks about their time wandering in the desert? The numbers, all right? And then Moses is, uh, Moses, he uh, strikes the rock when he's not supposed to write, and God says, you're not going to go in the land. So, now, 40 years later, he's not going to go in the land. He's across the river from Jericho in a place called the Plains of Moab. It's kind of a real deserty place right down by the Dead Sea. He's there on the Plains of Moab. This generation now was not at Mount Sinai. So he gives them a series of sermons as they're about ready to conquest the land. What do you suppose the name of the book of that, that talks about those sermons? Numbers. Deuteronomy. Okay, it's Deuteronomy, okay? And Deuteronomy is a retelling of the law to this new generation. And in there, Deuteronomy 28, there, 28 has 14 verses of blessings. Now, the, the nation of Israel is going to go into the land, they're going to conquer it under Joshua. And then they're going to set up their nation. And God says in 14 verses, if you follow my law, I'll bless you. You'll be blessed when you go out. Blessed when you come in. Your cattle will have many babies. All these sort of things. Your calves. Not babies, sorry. Um, something like it. Not that. But um, anyways, you're going to be blessed, blessed, blessed for 14 verses. And then he says, but if you don't, 
for the next 50 plus verses, he tells them of all the curses that are going to happen. This is really important. Get this, because this opens up the Old Testament to you. Start to understand it. When you understand that as Israel was going into the land, there was a covenant between God. He says, follow my law and I will bless you. Don't follow my law and you're going to be cursed. There's going to be marauding uh, countries that are going to come in. You're going to have famines. Do you ever hear famines in the Bible? Yeah, guess what's happening, all right? And then eventually, if you keep doing this, I'm going to send you an exile, all right? That's what he said in Deuteronomy, all right? And we'll come back to that. And so Deuteronomy is really important to understand. Deuteronomy 28, you understand the whole rest of the Old Testament. Because all the rest of the Old Testament will tell you, like in Ruth, the first verses are, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Ah! I've had pastors go, yeah? That tells you everything. What's that tell you? Israel was in sin. They need to repent. There's all sorts of issues going on, and they should repent. But instead, by the way, Elimelech takes his family and runs to the sworn enemy of Israel. And guess what? He's facing judgment. All right? So that is, see how this is important in interpreting things. All right. Then we have Joshua, Judges, and Ruth are written during this period of time. And, uh, of course, Joshua is about conquest of the land. Judges is about how the things that happened during this time. And then Ruth is just a story about that girl. It's really the redemption of Naomi, but well, that's another, another day. All right. Continuing on in our study, we have King Saul here. That's followed by King David, then King Solomon. And then after Solomon, the kingdom divides. You remember that story? Um, uh, Solomon's son is given the option to, to be decent to the people of the northern kingdom. And he says, no, I'm going to be rougher on them. And they split, and they bring in a new kingdom. So the kingdom splits into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom, Judah. How many of you knew that? See, so, all right, so a lot of you didn't know that. That's important. That's important. So you're going to see this when you read uh, about the kings. Uh, you're going to read the kings of, Is of, the, of Israel, the northern kingdom, none of them are good. You're only going to find good kings in the southern kingdom of Judah, and many of them weren't good, okay? There were some good ones, but not many. All right, eventually, God takes that northern kingdom and says, you're done, I'm sending you to exile. And they went to exile in Syria, never to be come back again. So they're often called the last lost tribes of Israel, okay? Lost tribes. Well, they're not lost, but they're, they're, they disappear from knowledge. And then the northern, southern kingdom, eventually, a hundred and some years later, go into the same sort of sequence of bad kings, and they go into exile to Babylon. All right? After 70 years, they return from the exile. Nobody ever does that. Once you're in exile, you disappear. But they come back. That's interesting. And then eventually, the last prophet speaks about 400 B.C., and there's nothing until the cross. All right? So let's take a look at how the books all fit together. And these books, Song of Solomon, or Song of Psalms, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, written during that time. Um, the historical books written that time were Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Kings, you read 1st and 2nd Kings, and then you read 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you say, didn't I just read the same thing? And you wonder, why do we have two of them? Anybody know? Here's why. Kings was written during the kings. Each king came and went. Chronicles was written after they came back from exile 
and it's a commentary on what Judah did wrong so they don't make the mistake again. So they're, they're very similar, but, the, but Chronicles is looking at it from a standpoint of view of what did they do wrong. He's looking back at their history so that they can learn and do what's right, which is smart thing to do. Smart thing to do. Okay, these books are written during this time of exile until, well, Malachi is one of those. Okay? And then we had prophets. So we had Hosea and Amos as prophets to the northern kingdom. So when you read them, they're going to be talking to the kings and the people of the northern kingdom. And all of these guys are to the southern kingdom of Judah. All right? So you just, that's helpful. So if you happen to be reading Jeremiah, you would know you're reading something that's happening to the southern kingdom. And then Daniel and Ezekiel, this is going to be really important, they're written during the exile. Daniel was exiled when he was about 13 years old to Babylon, 900 miles away. He lived his whole life there and died there. And, and so Daniel is a very interesting book, and we're going to cover that uh, tomorrow, I believe, a little bit. And then finally, between the last book, Malachi, there's a thing called the Apocrypha, Catholics believe it is inspired. Protestants generally don't, and I would agree with that. I've read uh, much of it, and uh, it doesn't have the same um, um, inspired nature that you find uh, in the other texts. Okay? And then there's two, or a couple other books. Uh, Jonah and Nahum are two Assyrian. Remember, that's where these guys go. And, and, and Jonah was written before they go. It was a warning to Assyria to repent, and guess what they did? And Jonah was mad because they're big bad, big bad guys, and he didn't want them. He wanted God to squash them, and so it's a very good study. But Nahum comes later and tells them, "You did, you did, you've gone back the same way. You're going to go." And they do go, and the Babylonians take them over. Um, so, and then Edom. Uh, there's a book called Obadiah to Edom, which is across the river from Israel, actually across the Dead Sea. Okay. How's that? Anybody got wrecked up? Got that down? Or does it test and just so well, yeah, no. But it's valuable stuff that you understand how the Bible fits together. And I actually could spend a couple of weeks with you on just that stuff. But that's the center of them because we're going to revisit that in a little while. That's important in prophecy. Alright, we think about a prophetic timeline. Now we're going to start with the cross of Christ. Alright? And we move forward. From the cross of Christ. The end, it was the end of the age of Israel. And we're now into the age of the church, or the age of the Gentiles. We're Gentiles. That would be kind of people who were non-Jewish, so to speak, uh, sons of Japheth. Uh, when Abraham, I mean, when Mo, uh, who was the guy in the boat? <laughs> Noah. Noah got out of the boat. He had three sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was more African people. Um, the Semitic tribes were around the Middle East, and then the Japhethites tended to move up into Europe. So we're European, we're Japhethites, and we were called Gentiles, and we're morphed into Gentiles. So that's who we are, most of us. Our, we began, the church age began with, with Christ and his resurrection. In the future, to us yet, will be an event called the rapture, where Christ come back, comes back and takes up the church true believers in Christ. That doesn't mean everybody who's going to your church is going. Might not be you. 
It's only people who have true faith in Christ when we take him up. He comes down and we meet him in the air, and up in fire, and, and then we're with him forever. Okay, that's the rapture. That is the next event. The next event. And I believe, looking at some of the things that are happening in the world in our generations, and I mean our generations from the younger guys to us older folks, there's things that happen that have never happened in the history of the world. And they were told, we were told they're going to happen. We'll see that this week in this time. After that comes a seven-year period of time called the tribulation period. It's also called the time of Jacob's trouble or Israel's trouble. It's a Jewish time. And it's seven years of really a big mess on this earth. We'll come back to that. At the end of that, the return of Christ, and how many of you have heard of the Battle of Armageddon? Most of you have. And we're going to cover that a little bit, I believe, the third session. Um, we are the Battle of Armageddon. And that is followed by Christ, when he comes back, will deal with all the rebellion in the world, and all the believing people from the world will be, will be allowed to, who are alive still, will go into what's called the Millennial Kingdom, where Christ is reigning on earth, and the believers from the church who now have glorified bodies that happens at the rapture uh, will be administrators. You know, you'll never have a bad judge because it'll be people who have been in the place of Christ. You won't have an evil judge. It'll be us and people like us administrators during that time. Okay, that's a millennial kingdom that's a thousand years long. It's followed by uh, an event that no one here should have to ever go to. It's a great wide throne judgment, which I pray no one here faces. Only non-believers. It's a judgment of your works. And you'll be held accountable for everything you've ever said. And that is followed by the eternal state, depending on where you are. If you're a believer in Christ, we are in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, that is a quick overview. By the way, there's copies of that over there, so you can, you can get a copy of that as well. Alright, so, um, there are a couple other things that happen after the rapture. For those of us in the church, we'll be up with Christ in heaven, and there'll be a judgment that we face. A judgment of rewards. And there'll be, some of us will face loss. You know, how many of you have ever heard the statement, there's no crying in heaven? There will be crying. There'll be tears at that time. Uh, the crying doesn't get taken care of until here. Okay? There'll be tears of loss, and oh man, I Also, joy for others. Then it's followed by a uh, marriage supper of the Lamb, the work of where Christ celebrates with us that he, we are joined together with Christ. Uh, and it could be a great thing, celebration before our return on earth with him. Now, it's an interesting thing, and I don't know if anybody else, I haven't seen a lot of people deal with this. This is kind of a Kevin Horton observation that before the millennial kingdom actually starts, there's a 75-day period of cleanup. Um, and, and so you're going to see 30 days, uh, 30, I can't remember the numbers now, um, there'll be a certain time for what's called the sheep and goat judgment, and then there'll be a little bit of time of cleanup, and then the millennial kingdom begins. Okay. How are we doing? Pretty good? All right. Well, we're just getting rolling, so hang on. All right. So, what are the signs of Christ coming? And so, this is kind of fun. I didn't pick all of them. I just picked some of them that are kind of interesting. Um, one of those is from Daniel chapter 
cloud. And Daniel talks to, or not, not Daniel, but an angel talks to Daniel and says, basically speaking of the end moments, he said, there'll be an exponential uh, growth in travel and knowledge. Isn't that interesting? When you think of things from Daniel's time, 500 BC, and you look at how knowledge has gone along, and then in the last, the 20th century, it's been exponential, an exponential growth. So, and then I didn't travel like I mean, who would have ever thought that we're going to fly like birds across oceans? And, and we do that now. And, and we have colleges and universities that teach tremendous amount of knowledge. And here's what Daniel says from Daniel. This is the angel speaking to him. But for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. There will be a tremendous amount of travel and an increase in knowledge in the end times. Number one. Number two. The Bible tells us that there will be a rebirth of the nation Israel. Now, this is from, and I'm going to hit this again tomorrow so you get it, but from a premillennial point of view. And I'll explain that tomorrow, so don't get stuck on that. But there are these other points of view that look at the Bible would laugh at us premillennials in the 1920s. You know why they laughed at us? They laughed at us because they said, <laughs> you premillennials, you know what you really you believe? You believe that God's going to reestablish the nation of Israel. Palestine's there. That's not possible. This is true. And here we are. Here we are. The nation of Israel is here. 1948, the nation of Israel was born. And that is amazing. The words in Isaiah is speaking about this event. Listen to these words. Who has ever heard of such a thing? Who has ever seen such things? Can a country be born in a day? Or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet, no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Prophesizing, this is impossible, but it will happen. And all of us here, I don't think any of us, how many of us were here in 1948? Okay. Oh, how about Mozart? How about Mozart? Okay, it's kind of hard. Yeah. All right, but you were probably little whippersnappers and didn't even know the significance of this. This is huge biblical prophecy that nobody expected to happen. It's happened. There have been other years, other histories. People say we're in the end times. We're in the end times. All throughout history, never has the nation of Israel been back in the land until 1948. Matthew. Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. We're going to go there during our time together. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24 and 25. As he's going there, he's passing the, the buildings of the great temple of Israel. And the, the disciples say, look at these great buildings, Jesus. And Jesus said, those will all be torn down and be gone. And his disciples were like, oh, what? That'll be all gone. What? And so they get it there. They have to think about it. So they cross the Kidron Valley. It's kind of a steep little valley down and back up the other side. They're up on the other side and they said, Tell us, what are the signs of your coming? And what, what is this all going to happen? And so the Matthew 24 and 25 are called the All Event Discourse, where he's up on the Mount of Olives. You see how the name comes? And during that time, he's telling us probably the biggest, biggest section of end time stuff. So that's a good thing to look at Matthew 24 and 25. 
In Matthew 24, he says this. You've heard this. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know summer is near. Right? We see the buds swelling. We know spring's coming, right? We all know this. Then he says, even so, when you see these things, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. And I believe what he's speaking to is the generation sees Israel back in the land. Whoa. Whoa. Now, that means we're closed. And so, here's a great book you all should get. 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. <laughs> What's that warn us? I remember, I remember when that printed out, and, and uh, I was still a veterinarian at the time, and I was out at a dairyman's place. He was a brother in Christ, and we'd have great talks together. We were working his cows. That day, we were working his calves, and uh, he said, hey, have you heard about this new book? And I just laughed. I said, you know, no one's going to know the day or hour. I think that I, I'm not even going to waste time on that book, except I think it's great now. Okay, it's great to point out. We can't be that exact and know that. That doesn't mean we can't know the time. That we're in the season. We can recognize the season. We can't know the day. We can't even necessarily know the year, but we can know we're in the season. Now, if we take 1948 and add one generation uh, to it, that would be the length of time. Now, I'm not sure it's 1948 because it could be when when is when sorry Jerusalem is taken. We'll come back to that in just a minute. So it could be later, 1967. But in one generation, if one generation is 40 years, that'd be 1988. See how they came to that? But a generation of the Bible is usually 70 to 100 years. So uh, I remember this. I made this slide about 10 to 15 years ago. And I realized, well, 2028 would be about right. Wow. What year is this year? 2021. And what's, what's happening around our world? Uh, lots of things. Okay, so the next verse in Matthew does say this. No one knows the day or hour, not the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So that sobers me all the time, that I'm not going to call the day. I might even call the year, okay? But I'm going to say, hey, you know what? I can see the seasons, because I think we're told to do that. So that's what we'll do. All right, another uh, thing that we, we saw, the growth and travel, the rebirth of Israel. Interesting thing is then that Israel has to be gathered. And the Jews have to start coming back to Israel. Jeremiah prophesizing about this. Now remember, Jeremiah was a contemporary of Daniel at 500, 600 B.C. about. He watched Jerusalem be destroyed by the Babylonians. He was in, in Jerusalem. Daniel was 900 miles away in Babylon. Okay, modern day Iraq. Um, but he, Je Jeremiah wrote this. So then, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will say, will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought up the Israelites out of Egypt, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the descendants of Israel out of the land of the north, out of all the countries where he banished them, then they will live in their own land. So they will say, wow, God brought them all back from all these other places in the north. This is interesting. In 2007, there was a group called Ebenezer Operation Exodus, 
and it is existing, uh, helping people get out of the, the former Soviet Union. And, and uh, getting, these are Jewish people and getting them to the land of Israel. And by 1990, that was when, up until then, they could not leave the uh, USSR because that was Soviet Union. But once that, the walls came down and all that happened, they were able to leave and tens of thousands of Jews have left, most of them have left Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, and just this last month, 130 more families came from Ethiopia. They're still gathering them all over the world. There's a regathering of the Jews to the land of Israel, exactly as was prophesied six, uh, 600 B.C. It's happening now. Now. Okay. So Israel will be reestablished. By the way, I put this in there just to show you that some Christians conclude that Jeremiah was talking about the return from Babylon. But the context of this is when David, the righteous branch, the king who will reign wisely, he's in the land. That is Jesus when he's in the millennial kingdom. You see that? And so that's what the context is. That's why we know that that's what's happening now. Now. By the way, never in the history of the world has one nation of people been banished twice, scattered all over the world to come back. They did it once in the Babylonian Empire, 70 years, and then after the destruction of the Jerusalem in 70 AD, they're scattered all over the world. They didn't come back until 
down below in Syria, and this is Syria, you can see these white tents, that's the UN encampment down in Syria. And they had nine over 900 Russian tanks coming up the hill to 104 Israeli tanks. When the battle ended, there were still five Israeli tanks that they put together and still running, and they won the battle. Now, how in the world did that happen? The hand of God. And they were literally, some of them were having to come up and in their cars to get to the battlefield because they weren't ready for this battle at all. It was a total surprise. And they won the battle, and Jerusalem became Israeli. Very interesting. So we've seen the regathering of the Jews. Now Jerusalem is no longer under Gentile rule. And then there'll be an increase in deception in my text just before it drops. Um, and, and, and we're just going to see that there's going to be a lot of deception in those end times. And um, Jesus spoke of this, and it's recorded in Matthew on the Olivet Discourse. Uh, it says, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. There's going to be deception in these last days, so prepare yourself for that. There'll be wars, famines, and pestilence. Now, there's always been, but it's going to be increasing as we get closer to the end. And uh, Matthew, again, Jesus on the Olivet Discourse says, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. Now, those of you who have your wife or, your, or maybe your mom, or you see a woman going into birth labor, how's that go? Starts slow, it starts to build rapidly. All right? And so we would expect the same thing with these earthquakes, famines, and pestilence towards the end time. And, and so we'll see that, and we'll come back to that a little bit. Then there'll be Armageddon. And, uh, and I, I was going to skip this, and, but I ended up in here anyways. We're going to skip that. Um, yeah, skip that. All right. Uh, I was supposed to be taken out, but then I lost that section and had to redo it, so it's still in here. Uh, so we're going to skip that. Next thing, though, I wanted to get to the mark of the beast and the absolute control on all financial transactions. And I've often thought about that. I thought, well, you can always do financial transactions. There's always other ways to do it, aren't there? Whether it be um, shells, you know, in, in certain cultures, or whether it would be um, gold or silver or bags of rice, you always do some things black market. But this is an absolute control. And I remember as a veterinarian, that was, I, this will date myself, but I remember when they first came out with chips for cats and dogs. And I went, oh my, they slip it under your skin, you can scan it, you know who it is. Who's, who's, old, who's the owner of that animal? This was in the 1980s, late 80s, 90s, something like that. And I went, wow, watch this. Sweden, this is three months old. How dirty is our money? Can you hear that? Thousands of people are inserting tiny micro. 
actually open the doors uh, with my hands. These tiny chips are about the size of a grain of rice, and they're implanted into the back of a hand with a syringe. And so far, about 3,000 Swedes have gotten them implemented. So in Sweden, you can actually use it to put your train tickets inside. You can actually use it with Scandinavia's biggest gym chain. So you don't actually need to show your membership card. I use it personally as a business card. So you can actually put your phone on my hand and then my LinkedIn pops up. Wow. Yes, this is three months old. Okay, did you notice how they sold this to you? Did you catch it? The answer to the coronavirus thing. You know, we're going to stay away from each other. And our money is full of what? Did you hear the words? I mean, we're men here, we can just say it. I mean, mouth bacteria and vaginal bacteria. Anything they can do to shock you into what's wrong and go this way. And then now this is so much easier. And by the way, they can't steal your credit cards anymore. You got it in you. You see the sales? Now, this is one month old. The Bahamas. Your sound coming? There we go. First, we should be focused on eliminating as many obstacles as possible for persons having access to the equivalent of a deposit account or a mobile wallet account to conduct transactions. Hurricane Dorian made landfall on the Bahamas with wind speeds of 185 miles per hour. The most powerful storm ever reported to strike the other nation. The SAG dollar was launched its pilot program in Exuma. Then we saw the launch happen in Africa, which is great because that island had just uh, suffered Hurricane Dorian and that allowed some banking and some transactions to happen there. If we live on an island that was completely defined as hurricane, then we may not have access to an ATM or bank launch. And the SAG dollar can help you because you can always buy a mobile phone. The SAG dollar is the digital version of the Bahamian currency. And it's built to be used on the mobile wallet platforms uh, financial institutions are introducing. We distribute the sand dollar to payment services providers uh, for further distributions to <coughs> institutions and merchants. They basically want sand dollars that there are no fees or transaction costs. So if I need to pay one of my staff, I can do it right there in the moment. They receive it literally within seconds. When COVID happened, I I wanted to move away from handing and touching money from others for the safety of myself and my family. So using Sandbox just helped me be more safer and feel secure. In many of our remote communities, there is very limited access to financial services on a daily basis. It helps those unbanked members of our population who don't have access to commercial banking. As a part of the island, it's been very helpful in bringing independent scrutiny to the process that we've undertaken getting to this point. We are at a very early stage in the process of introducing the Sandbox. We need to leapfrog now and allow everybody to provide financial services through 
Look who's sponsoring this. International Monetary Fund. Now, what did you notice there? What did you pick up and how they were selling that to us? Convenience? Yeah. Also, did you notice we had not only COVID, but we also had the hurricane. So it's some kind of disaster is going to push us that way. What else did you notice? Did you notice who they're seeking to get? Unbanned people. So they get all transactions in. I have a film I can bring here where the IMF people actually said, this is, they were so excited about a digital worldwide digital currency. You know why? Because they can know that person's every single transaction and even know what groceries you bought. They said that. They said that. And so in Revelation, it says this, speaking of the Antichrist and his false prophets, also causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of his name. And then you go into the calculation on 666 and you can just... Um, do whatever you want with that number, okay? We'll just leave that go. Point is this, is this is right now here, and it's coming right now. The goal of the IMF is to have a one world digital currency by 2030. In the time when President Trump was re recently inaugurated, he was invited to the IMF to speak and become part of their, their former movement. And he said this, he said, I am the President of the United States. That is my first and foremost importance, um, a job. George Soros, part of the RMF, immediately recorded and put out there that Trump will be gone in 2020 and we have to get this moving forward. True? It's all under here, you can see it. This is all for real. It's moving forward. I said, is the world falling apart or is it falling place? Global eye in the sky in Revelation. I remember when I first spotted this, I was teaching Revelation. I was still a veterinarian. I wasn't a pastor, didn't know the Bible that well yet. But I noted this the global eye in the sky. And I'm thinking, what? Uh, and this is in Revelation chapter 11. It's, called, it's a guy, I don't know, it's a section called the Great Parenthetical Section of Revelation where the chronology of Revelation stops. And there's a parenthesis to tell you information that's happening all around the chronology, outside of the chronology. And in that chronology, it talks about these two witnesses who are killed. And these witnesses are witnesses of God. And they're killed by the Antichrist during the middle of the tribulation. All right? And this is what it says. For three and a half days, look at this carefully, men from every people tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts. A black Christmas. Isn't that something? And because these two pilots had tormented those who lived on earth, those who were non-believers, global eye in the sky, how can all the people all over the world of every people, groups, and language, and tongues be able to see this at one time. Now, 50 years ago, that wouldn't be possible. We'd have to wait until the real would come, right? The 1940s and all that stuff. 
We can see it with satellite transmission, and of course now it's, it's satellite what? Internet. So it's there right now. Satellite and internet, and that's something only true in the last 20 years. 20 years. And earthquakes, of course, when I first did this, this was, I made this, this in 2009, late 2009, so the great uh, earthquake in Tokyo, but then it was two years later, this one. And, uh, and the great tsunami, and then since then there's been killer volcanoes. And then actually what's interesting is this, is this chart shows that, that the earthquake frequency and, and intensity is greatly increasing in the last 80 years. Earthquakes will increase, and Matthew 24 tells us that. That was on the Olivet Discourse. 20th century is known now as the century of earthquakes. And we have read, uh, records that go back to the 13th century. And if you put all the earthquakes from the 13th to the 19th century, they are less than what took place in the 20th century. And that's considering the ability to do uh, what level they could be able to detect the earthquakes. Next thing, number 10, as in the days of Noah. I think this is significant for us to know and think about. Is, and remember, in Matthew, Jesus is talking about it. He says, no one knows the day or the hour, right? And then he says, as it was the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. All right, so what does that mean? There's going to be flood. What does it mean? Well, he tells us. Okay, just read on. He tells us, for in the days before the flood, people were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Now, he's building this big ship right by him, right? In a place that doesn't rain. Uh, um, he gets in the ark. They still don't believe it. Even though the evidence is there, they don't believe it. They don't buy it. Until the flood, it says that they knew nothing about what would happen. What is Noah called? He's called in, in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, the preacher of, of righteousness. He was a great preacher to his people. Yet they still didn't get it. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. What does that mean? It means there's an insensitivity and actually an intentional ignorance to the things of the Lord. Anybody notice that in our culture? You like to bring these things up, what happens? <laughs> oh my goodness. If we could go back even if you watch the movies from the 1950s and 60s, and you notice the Christian culture community, and you look at what's on TV now today, and it's so dark by comparison, insensitivity to things of the Lord, they scoff at the coming of the Lord. It's the same way they scoffed at Israel in Ebenezer 1. Therefore, they believe that life will just go on and on without any God who has a program. What is that? By the way, do you know where many of these people are coming from? Our churches. There are kids who are in a new demographic called the religious nuns. And it has nothing to do with the Catholic Church. And they're, they're nuns. This is a group of people that have no belief in God. They believe there is no God. Most of them come from evangelical churches. They don't believe. And why? Because of evolution and science and atheism they've been fed all the way through the age. That's the new generation coming up. 
that's becoming the biggest growth, fastest growing demographic in America today. Wow. So are we close? What do you think? What do you think? And we look at how close to it on the timeline. The next event on the timeline is the rapture. We'll deal with that tomorrow so you know what that's all about. And I'll remind you what he said. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. Jesus said this on the Mount of Olives. He's going to be crucified in just a few days. As soon as the twigs get tender, as leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at Thank you. 